Welcome to Women in the Word, everybody. My name is Amy Foster. It's just my pleasure to be here with you, and we always want to stop and welcome our friends at the West Campus. They're with us in spirit. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for being faithful to this study. I've absolutely loved it, and I've loved just considering week after week the reality that we are friends with God, and friendship with God is a, a, just a magnificent thing. When I think about friendships, I think, you know, they're really living and active. They're not stagnant. And when a friendship is new, we have to reveal things about ourselves. We have to introduce ourselves. We have to work to get to know each other and share our plans and our dreams and our values. But as that friendship matures, we don't have to keep saying those things over and over and over again. We hope that our friends will know us and remember these things about us. We, we actually hope that our friends will be sensitive to us and we don't have to start from scratch every time we're together. I can remember one summer, one of my boys came home from college and we went through this little transition of having to regain some of our sensitivity to each other. Some of you probably know what that's like. The very first night he was home, I woke at about 2 a.m. to the sound of just exuberant, joyful guitar playing and, and singing. And I uh, stumbled out into the living room and sort of reintroduced myself to him. And I said, um, I'm your mom, and I sleep at night, and I work during the day. And he was kind and gracious. I went back to bed thinking, all right, we've cleared that up, and I know he will be sensitive in the future. The next night, no joke, about three in the morning, I hear that same exuberant music. I stumble into the living room, and in my confusion, I look around, and I can't see him, but I can hear that music. And I realize he's moved it to the back patio. <laughs> he's trying to be sensitive, but he, he's lost sight of one thing. The only thing that separates that back patio from my pillow is a thin little piece of glass and a few flowers. Um, so I point this out to him, and he's kind and gracious. And I go back to bed a little worried and a little frustrated, thinking, is the whole summer going to be like this? Or will he learn to be sensitive? And I actually think, perhaps I should post big signs every night all over the house that say, quiet, please, sleep in progress. <laughs> well, I didn't have to, things improved. Um, but friendships do have to grow and sensitivity does have to exist in our relationships. God comes to his friends, Abraham and Isaac, and he introduces himself and he begins a friendship with them. And as he introduces himself, he tells them all about himself and who he is. And he tells them his plans and his values and his dreams, and he makes promises to them. God tells them, I am Yahweh, the covenant-making God, and I want friendship with you. And then he tells them some promises. I'm going to give you a great land and I'm gonna turn your offspring into a big nation and I'm going to bless you. And then the best part, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. That's who God is and that's how he wanted his friends to know him. He would repeat those things many, many times and many times he would demonstrate his power and his faithfulness to be those things and to accomplish his promises. Now God's going to extend his friendship to Jacob and he's going to carry this covenant blessing and this promise into another generation but the friendship would need to grow. It would need to be a mature and a sensitive friendship. God shouldn't have to keep introducing himself 
himself all the time. Mature friends should know God. Mature friends should respond even when his voice is quiet. Mature friends don't need big signs posted all over their lives telling them who God is and how faithful he is. Well, fortunately for us, God initiated friendship with them the same way he does with us because of his grace, not because we're special, not because we're wonderful, but simply because of his merciful goodness towards us. Grace is undeserved. It's all God's activity. It's all God's energy, and it's all God's part. Ephesians 2.8 reminds us on your verse sheet, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so God and grace initiates friendship, and once we grab his hand and join that friendship with us, he never lets us go. Nothing can separate us from the love of God at that point. But for the friendship to become mature and healthy, it needs to grow, doesn't it? We need to become a mature friend of God. We will never earn this friendship. We don't have to work to be a part of it, but we can participate with it. Friendship that is mature is reciprocal, isn't it? And that's what we have the opportunity to do, and that's what um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had the opportunity to do. I think Jesus describes this reciprocal aspect of friendship really well in John 10, 14, and he's really describing his relationship with his followers. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. They grow in maturity and in sensitivity to God, and they know who he is. So we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 27, and right away we're going to see a need for maturity, for spiritual sensitivity in God's friends. He needs for his friends to know him. And up to this point, in these last chapters we've studied, you know, God has been speaking very clearly in visions and in dreams, and he's been doing wonders, and he's been doing mighty things, but something's different in this chapter. God is quiet. He is quiet with all of his friends here. And in his quietness, when they don't have big signs posted all over their life, would they be sensitive friends? Would they know, would they act like they know him? I want to remember, remind us where we left off, because this is kind of a big epic saga here that we're stopping in the middle of. God has a program to bless the world, and he brings his blessing to the world through friendship with individuals. It began with Abraham, then it extended to Abraham's son Isaac. In the last few weeks, we've learned about Isaac and his great love story with his wife, Rebecca. They marry, but they have difficulty conceiving a child. And in chapter 25, God tells us, that Isaac prayed that his wife would conceive, and after 20 years, God miraculously opened her womb, but the pregnancy was difficult, crushing, and painful, and so she goes and prays to God to understand what's going on with this pregnancy, and God answers her, and the words that he speaks to her, our theologians call these words an oracle. It's a message from God. In Genesis 25, 23, God answers her and says, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Well, for the uh, 
uh, older to serve the younger. That was definitely contrary to the custom of the day. During this time, the oldest brother was the heir. The oldest brother would continue the family line. The oldest brother would lead the family. The, the oldest, simply by virtue of birth order, had the coveted birthright. And attached to the birthright was this blessing that came with it. The birthright designated him as the next leader and actually as the spiritual priest of the family. But God tells Rebecca, that's not going to go to the older, it's going to go to the younger. Rebecca did deliver twins. We read about this last week. Esau born first, and then his younger brother Jacob, who comes out holding on to Esau's heel. Esau would grow up and demonstrate no spiritual sensitivity to God whatsoever. He would place so little value on this covenant blessing, this covenant promise of God, that he would literally sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. He would allow his hunger and his appetite to override the great blessings of God. He also wouldn't follow in the pattern of his father, but he would marry Hittite wives or women who lived in the land of Canaan. And these were not among the descendants who were a part of God's line of promise. The family also, we learn, would be marked with favoritism among the parents. Genesis 25, 28 tells us that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And as we read this chapter, you're gonna see over and over and over again, Jacob is referred to as her son, and Esau is referred to as his son. So it's a family that's marked with favoritism. So remembering where we are in the big saga, let's begin reading Genesis 27, verse one. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and Esau answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old, I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapon, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So chapter 25 ended with God's oracle saying the blessing, the birthright, all these things are not going to go through the oldest son. And chapter 12, 27 opens with Isaac preparing to give all of this to the oldest son. We don't know for certain if Isaac knows about this oracle of God. The text doesn't tell us that. Um, there are you know, plenty of theologians who believe he probably did know, and we definitely see some suspicious things happening in this interaction, but we can't know for certain if he knew about the oracle of God. Um, the first thing that we see that is suspicious is this uh, giving of the blessing that's described here. It's being done in secret. Rebecca, the mother, doesn't know about it. Jacob, the younger brother, doesn't know about it. None of the respected household uh, helpers are involved in it, and that is contrary to the custom of the day. So he is secretly planning to give this blessing to Esau. Now, what we do know that Isaac knows, he knows that Esau's nature is unspiritual. He knows this because Esau has married these women who are not from the line of blessing and these women have made their lives bitter and contentious and difficult. And most likely, Isaac also knows that Esau sold the birthright. And he probably knows that because Esau mentions it in this interaction and nobody acts shocked or surprised by that. So knowing the unspiritual nature of his son, Isaac makes this plan to make him the spiritual leader of the family. 
And what about Esau in this? He certainly doesn't look great. Um, He's already sold his birthright actually two times. He swore to his brother that he could have it for that bowl of stew. So Esau's moving forward with the father's plans here, going against his sworn, sworn word. So we've got both of these men really being insensitive to the plans and the desires of God, being insensitive to what God has already communicated to them. But Rebecca is involved too. Rebecca looks like this through most of the story. She's listening in. She's got the sharpest ears in the family. She's going to overhear their plan and their scheme, and she's going to set her own plan in motion. And I just want you to make note, this is the first recorded incident of helicopter parenting. That's not a 20th century invention. It began with Rebecca. So read with me beginning in verse five. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am smooth. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. Okay, uh, Rebecca here is directing Jacob to lie and to conceal and to deceive his father. The entire thing is her idea and her plan. And I don't know if you noticed, but she tells Jacob, obey. And she doesn't say, obey my suggestions. She says, obey my commands. She had a beautiful opportunity to lead her family in spiritual sensitivity here, and she fails in that opportunity. Now, perhaps Rebecca's motives were good. We don't know. Perhaps she wanted the oracle of God to be carried out. That is a very real possibility. But we see clearly she does not have faith in God's ability to carry out his promises. She does not believe God can accomplish this, or she prefers to accomplish it in her own way. You know, we've seen uh, Abraham and Isaac and their family repeatedly trying to use human means to accomplish God's plans, and it never works out well for them. You might think back to Abraham and Sarah and their inability to conceive. They used human plans and said, how about Hagar? That didn't go very well. And then both Abraham and Isaac, when they were fearful for their safety and their protection, they looked at their beautiful wives and said, oh yes, she's my sister. All of those were human means, human plans to try and work out what God had already promised that he was going to do. 
What about Jacob here? I think it's really sad to note the only concern he expresses is what if we get caught? What if a curse comes to me instead of a blessing? He's not worried about lying to his father or deceiving this elderly and infirmed man. He's not worried about sin. He simply doesn't want to suffer the consequences for sin. So a few weeks ago, we had a story where Deb said, everybody's doing the right thing, and it was this beautiful story. Now we have a story where nobody's doing the right thing, and it's a terrible story, (laughs) but it's gonna have a happy ending, sort of. We've got four people, all who have had the opportunity to know God and to have years of friendship with God, to know his character, to know his plans, to know his promises, to see and observe personally how powerfully he can work to accomplish those plans. If you just think about it, this is the third generation now. God has brought them into this land. He has preserved all of their lives. He's given them wells and land and favor and blessing. He's opened their wombs in miraculous ways. And even the pagan rulers and the pagan neighbors around them recognize the powerful work of God that's working in their behalf. That was our story last week with Abimelech, wanting to make a treaty and a covenant with them because God's favor was so evident to all the people around them. And in spite of all of those years of friendship with God, when God's voice is quiet, they all are insensitive to God and his plans and his desires. Let's keep reading, beginning in verse 18. And so Jacob went to his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am, who are you, my son? And Jacob said, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it you have found it so quickly? Jacob answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I might feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he didn't recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's. And so he blessed him and he said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and he blessed him and he said, see the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. All right, disguised as Esau, Jacob approaches his father and begins to tell a sad series of lies. You can hear his father's doubt in all these questions that he keeps repeating. Um, Who are you? How have you found the game so quickly? Come near that I may feel you. The voice is Jacob's, and then he even ends it one more time with, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob lies and lies and lies. At any point, he could have stopped this process, but he lies and he deceives his father. 
What we really see happening here is Isaac relying on all his physical senses. In spite of all this doubt, he relies on his physical senses, but they betray him. The sense of smell, the sense of taste, the sense of feel. He knows the hearing is not right. He knows, but he relies on all those other senses, and he is led astray. And I have to stop and think, how common is that in our experience today? We rely on how things feel. We rely on how things look. We rely on how we experience things. And we lose sight of what God has said and what God has done. And we, too, are led astray. We've got people placing their faith, placing their confidence in lots of things other than the words and deeds of God. I think Rebecca is placing her faith in her ability to control the circumstances, her ability to manipulate things to the timing and the terms that she wants. I think Isaac has placed his faith in both his physical senses and his physical appetites and having those fed instead of God's word and God's deeds. When we place our faith in our own plans and our own physical experiences and our own appetites, we drown out the words and plans of God. And ladies, that's how we slip into spiritual insensitivity. And I think the capacity is in each one of us. Sometimes it's just a slow process of slipping. It's not an outward, bold defiance of God. It's just a slipping away. Just this week, God reminded me of my own powerful desire to control the world so that my boys' lives will be pleasant and good and go along according to plan. And I'm just gonna be honest with you, it was kind of a painful process of realizing that that is in me and it's powerful in me. And I wonder if it's in you too. And I wonder if some of you maybe have this uh, uh, tendency to enjoy beautiful things and great food. Or I wonder if some of you maybe like Jacob have a tendency to be ambitious and maybe prideful. And none of those things on their own are necessarily bad things, but we always have to be careful and we always have to keep them in balance in our lives because the moment we become more sensitive to those tendencies than we are to the words and deeds of God, then we too slip into spiritual insensitivity. So to avoid that, we have to nurture our friendship with God. We have to help it grow and mature to remain sensitive. We have to be ever mindful of what God has said and what God has done. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I love that this shows us this requires discipline and activity on our part. For our friendship to grow and mature, we must be disciplined and active about knowing God's word and putting it someplace where we can get to it and recall it. And then Psalm 77, 11 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And again, it's this instruction to be disciplined and to be active about remembering how God has worked in the past. So we remember how he's worked in the lives of these people here, and then we remember how he's worked in our own lives. And we use those deeds of God to help us experience new circumstances and make new decisions so that we don't become insensitive. And then Psalm 16, eight says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And I love those words, I have set, because it just shows deliberate, determined, disciplined activity. 
I have set the Lord before me. That means I'm going to stay sensitive to God by remembering his deeds and remembering his words and remembering his character and remembering his power and I'm gonna keep that right before me all the time even when God is quiet. And those things will protect us from becoming insensitive to God. Isaac's going to go on and proceed to give the blessing here, um, but it's really not a spiritually sensitive blessing. If you've been studying these chapters with us the last few weeks, you're pretty familiar with the covenant blessing of God, and it always includes this promise of land and promise of offspring that would become a great nation and promise of blessing. I'm gonna bless you so that through you I can bless the whole world. Um, perhaps this version of a blessing is intended for a spiritually insensitive Esau, and that's why it doesn't really sound like the covenant blessing of God that Isaac is passing on to his son here. Even the name of God that Isaac uses is Elohim, and that is an appropriate name for God. It, it refers to God um, as a personal God, but that is not the way God has been described in any of these chapters. God has described himself as Yahweh, the covenant-making God. And then God described himself as El Shaddai, the powerful, miracle-working God. That's how God's been presenting himself in these chapters. And then what does this blessing include here? It includes dew and fatness of the earth and grain and wine. That doesn't really suggest a specific land as a part of the blessing. It suggests prosperity in crops and abundance, but not a land. And then let people serve you and bow down to you and be Lord over your brothers. That really doesn't suggest the numerous offspring that would become a nation. It simply suggests domination over your brother, over your competitive younger brother. And then curse those who curse you and bless those who bless you. These words have been used in the Abrahamic covenant, but they fall so fall short, they fall far short without the, and all the people of the earth shall be blessed through you. This blessing focuses much more on the relationship between the brothers and the benefit that he could have in his relationship with his brothers so much more than it focuses on the covenant promises of God. Well, the plot is immediately exposed and all kinds of misery ensues. Let's pick the story back up in verse 30 here. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently, and he said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. That's really important that he expresses that finality right there, and he shall be blessed. And then he goes on, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. 
Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. All right, once again, Isaac says, who are you, my son? But he actually already knows what's happened, and he already knows he has been deceived, and he already knows he has given the blessing to Jacob, and it is irrevocable. When it says he trembled very violently, it's really important to know those words trembled violently. They don't mean um, sudden shock or surprise or even anger. Those words actually mean fear and terror. They mean the fear of God when you recognize he's put his hand down and he started working directly in your life and in your plan. And the terror, that means you recognize you have been working against God. So immediately he feels fear and terror and realizes that the powerful El Shaddai God has intervened and worked against his plan. When he stops there at the very beginning and he says, yes, and he shall be blessed in verse 33, the meaning of that is it is done, it is finished, we cannot undo it because God has done it. So immediately, Isaac remembers and recalls the plans and the promises and the power of God, and immediately, Isaac becomes a little bit spiritually sensitive. It's just a little bit late here. Esau's anguish, I just thought, was palpable. I don't know if that broke your heart for him reading these verses. He cries out, and over and over, he begs his father to bless him also. Even though Isaac says it's finished, Esau just keeps begging for some other blessing, showing us that Esau's priority never was the one true covenant blessing of Abraham. Esau has in mind that Isaac can just parcel out the blessing, and that's what he's after. We get a little more insight into Esau from the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. It says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The tears are referring to this instance right here, and it says he had no chance to repent. We know that repent means to turn around to turn towards God. And so we learn from Hebrews 12 that Esau never turns toward God. So Isaac gives Esau this blessing, and many of you probably thought it doesn't sound like a blessing. Most of the commentaries would agree it sounds like either a curse or it sounds like a blessing for a profane person. Either way, it is not the covenant blessing of God. Esau's blessing would include living away from the fatness and the, of the earth and the dew of heaven. That means away from the fertile land of Canaan, away from the promised land of God. Because the land is not fertile, he would have to live by his sword. 
And it says that he will be restless and he'll have to submit to his brother until that relationship becomes violent and destructive. And I think we have to stop and recognize that God is still showing care for Esau. He's providing a future. He's providing a land. He's providing a nation for Esau. Um, but it just wasn't the promised land. Esau would become the father of the Edomites, and we're gonna see his name again in the next few weeks. Edom was this desolate, barren region just southeast of the Dead Sea. That's the Salt Sea. If you've ever seen pictures of it, it looks like Mars. It is a dreary region. It's been described as the most dreary and sterile desert land in the world. That's where Esau would go. And their history, the Edomites, would be that they would serve Israel, they would revolt against Israel, and then they would be conquered by Israel over and over and over again until the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So hundreds of years fighting with Israel. You know, we see a pattern in Genesis. Sometimes the foolish, insensitive plans of God's friends <laughs> results in the creation of nations that will be Israel's enemy. We saw it in the offspring of Ham and the offspring of Ishmael and now in the offspring of Esau. Insensitivity to God brings suffering and strife instead of blessings. Verse 41 tells us how Esau responds now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Esau responds with a plan to kill Jacob and Rebecca finds out about it because she looks like this one more time. She uh, hears the plans. And Rebecca sets her own plan in place. I'm gonna paraphrase that. We don't quite have enough time to read it all. Um, Rebecca decides that Jacob needs to flee so that Esau won't murder him. She wants Jacob to go all the way back to Haran. Remember, this is her home. This is where she came from. And Jacob can go back there and be with her brother Laban for just a little while. Can't you just hear a mother's soothing voice? For just a little while, dear, until Esau's fury turns away. For just a little while, until Esau forgets what you have done to him. <laughs> for just a little while. It's a good thing these boys weren't sisters because sisters never forget, do they? <laughs> yeah. Once again, Rebecca is using deceptive practices with her husband. Rather than just tell him what's going on, she devises this plot. She starts complaining about Esau's Hittite wives and how miserable they're making her so that Jacob will think perhaps it's a good idea excuse me, Isaac will think perhaps it's a good idea to send Jacob up to Haran to find a suitable wife. Um, the scene closes with a completely fractured family. Jacob is fleeing for his life. Esau is planning murder. A husband and wife are regularly making secret plans and deceiving each other, and God's will prevails. Jacob did receive the blessing, but what is happening in this family God had said, I want to bless you. I want to bless you. And blessings are good things, not murder and rage and deception and deceit. Insensitivity to God brings suffering and strife instead of blessings. But lest you be totally discouraged here, there is a hero of the story. He's just quiet. 
God is the hero of the story, and God's grace is the miraculous thing that turns all this right again. So I just need to stop and encourage you that when God is quiet, he's still there, he's still listening, he's still active, his grace is still working. God doesn't cut them off from friendship, even though none of them have acted with sensitivity. Once again, he's faithful in their foolishness. He just lets them experience some hard consequences so that their friendship can grow. A little while would become more than 20 years. During that time, Jacob does not experience any of the benefit of the fatness of the land of Canaan. Instead, he's vulnerable to an opportunistic uncle. We're gonna read about that next week. During that time, Rebecca would die she would never again see her favorite son. And I have to stop and think, this was before email and Facebook and FaceTime and texting. I don't know if Rebecca ever had word from Jacob, her favorite son, again. I think when she said, let the curse fall on me, she had no idea what she was saying there. And the conflict between Israel and the Edomites would go on for centuries. So they did suffer consequences, and consequences come into all of our lives. They don't occur because of God's doing. They occur because of man's foolish choices, man's insensitivity to God. But grace is the hero, because when grace intervenes, the consequences don't harden us. They tenderize us. They make us sensitive to God, to who he is, what he's doing, and how he works. And that's what happens here. God's grace prevails, and we see the true friends of God's. They actually grow in sensitivity in spite of these conflicts. Right away, we see Isaac grow. He immediately demonstrates his faith in God by aligning himself with God's plans, not his own. And then Isaac goes on, and he gives Jacob instructions about finding a wife, and he also gives him the real blessing. Begin reading in chapter 28 with me. Then Isaac called Jacob, and he blessed him, and he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban. All right, the instructions regarding Isaac's wife were the exact same instructions that Abraham had given his servant when he was to go find Rebekah, the suitable wife for Isaac. They would not marry Canaanite women. God had designated a specific line of blessing that would come through a specific family, and so they would not mix and intermarry with other lines. The Canaanites were never in the line of blessing. And then Isaac goes on to give the real blessing to the real heir, and you hear his sensitivity, his spiritual sensitivity to his friend God in these. He uses the, the name for God, El Shaddai. That means the powerful God, the God who intervenes and does miracles. And he asked God to make Jacob a great nation and to give him this land that was promised to Abraham and that all the blessings of Abraham would go to Jacob. This is the real blessing. This is the blessing of a sensitive, 
person who's understanding the, the Abrahamic covenant. There's a sad little sidebar there about Esau. I'm gonna paraphrase that again too. In short, Esau can't win for losing. Poor Esau. He recognizes that now, he recognizes that his parents never approved of these Canaanite wives, so he decides to take another wife, and he won't take a Canaanite this time. He will choose somebody from Abraham's family. He'll choose Ishmael's daughter. Now, if you're joining our story new here, I'm just gonna apologize. It's a really complicated family tree, but when Abraham and Sarah had difficulty conceiving the promised heir, they took matters into their own hands. They used Hagar, the servant, and Ishmael was born. Ishmael had never been God's choice, and by God's direction, Ishmael had been separated from the family of promise, and poor Esau is so spiritually dense. He never understood the Abrahamic covenant to begin with, and that's why he does not understand that marrying a daughter of Ishmael is not a good thing. You know, in the preceding chapters, we've seen God do some pretty dramatic things. He has spoken directly to his servants and he sent angelic messengers to them. He's rained down fire and brimstone on some unrighteous cities. He's turned a woman into a pillar of salt when she was disobedient. And it occurs to me when God does something really dramatic, it doesn't require sensitivity to believe or to respond. And I think Esau probably could respond to all of those things. Even the pagans who didn't believe in God could respond to those things. Um, but when God is quiet and he's not doing something dramatic, his true friends will still believe and his true friends will respond correctly. We see here that spiritual sensitivity is not dependent on dramatic experiences or emotions. You know, even in Jesus' day, this was a huge problem. The people would come out and just beg Jesus to do a miracle and perform a sign. And lots of people could respond to the big dramatic things. But spiritual sensitivity would be dependent on remembering the words and plans and deeds of the Lord and just acting accordingly, even when nothing dramatic is happening. There's this beautiful story in 1 Kings 19. It's Elijah the prophet who's seen so many mighty dramatic things that God has done, and he's discouraged and he's weary, and he asks God, can I see you? I just wanna see you. Listen to how this uh, plays out. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the great wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The Lord was in the low whisper. So spiritually sensitive people, we can hear God even when it's quiet. For me, spiritual sensitivity is something I think of like a filter that I just put around my whole life. And everything that comes to me, every idea, every opportunity from the world, I put it through this filter. And then everything that comes out of me, everything I might say, every choice I might make, I put it through this filter. And here's what my filter consists of. Who is God? What does he value? What has he asked of me? How does he work? And I just try not to let anything in that's outside of those truths. And I try real hard not to let anything out that's outside of those truths. And I'm just gonna be honest with you, I don't get it right 
all the time. Sometimes I mess up. Um, I'm not perfect. But as long as I choose to pull that filter up around me and set the Lord continually before me, then I am being spiritually sensitive and I am acting like God's friend. Now, the other thing is also a possibility. I can choose at any time to drop that filter. I can drop the filter and I can ignore the truths, the words, the deeds, and the plans of God. And when I drop the filter, I am insensitive. We're, we're gonna see sensitivity continue to develop in God's friends here. Begin reading with me, uh, 28 verse 10. Now Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep and he dreamt. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you." Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on it and he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. And then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob is on this 450-mile journey all alone, headed to Haran, both to find a wife and also to flee from Esau. Jacob has missed the opportunity to learn the easy way, to learn from Abraham and Isaac and their experience. And I love that God in his grace, he takes Jacob back to the beginning of friendship and he introduces himself all over again. And he spells out his plan and his promise. He gives Jacob this vision, this dream of a ladder extending from heaven to earth. Maybe your translations called it a staircase with the angels of God going up and down, that ladder or that staircase, that's a symbol of fellowship and friendship between God and man, a connection between the God of heaven and men on earth. And standing at the top of the ladder is God, and he says, I am Yahweh, the covenant-making God. I am, he introduces himself, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And I love this reminder that the great I am is the one who gets to introduce himself. He defines himself, he defines the plans, and he defines the promise and the covenant. He reiterates the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob, the land on which you lie, I'm giving to you and your offspring, and your offspring will be so numerous, you'll spread out like dust over the entire earth, and through you, 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the covenant almost identical to the way God had expressed it before to Abraham. And now God adds a dimension to it. And I am with you always. I'm with you always and I'll keep you wherever you go. And most importantly, I'll bring you back. God had added this when he extended the covenant to Isaac. What helpful and comforting words these would be to Jacob, who's all alone, traveling to a place far away from these lands, and he's going to spend many frustrating years away with a lot of fear about returning back to an angry brother. So God gives this additional blessing, promising his constant presence and his constant protection. This is the high water mark for Jacob here. He awakes from this dream, and he awakes as a friend of God's. And this is the first time Jacob expresses faith in God. He responds with fear and reverence and worship. You see him memorializing that event by building the memorial there and consecrating it with oil. And he makes this vow to God. This is his own covenant that he is making to God. And it might sound a little confusing when you first read it. It kind of sounds like he's manipulating God just a little bit. Um, But we lose a little in our translation here. Really, Jacob is saying, because God will be faithful, since God will be faithful, he's speaking with certainty about God's forthcoming faithfulness. Because God will be faithful to all he's promised, then the Lord will be my God. Jacob's first expression of faith happens right here, and it's the beginning of his friendship with God. And what I love about his story is that God's grace is all over it, because Jacob certainly doesn't deserve God's friendship at this point, does he? So far in the story, he's been immature, he's been dishonest, he's been manipulative, and he's been self-seeking. And I had to stop and think, well, fortunately for me, God offers grace to the immature and the manipulative and the self-seeking because that's me sometimes. And that's why he calls it grace. And the beautiful thing is once God offers that friendship and we respond, he never abandons us. And so he just allows us these opportunities to grow in friendship with him. When I look at this whole story, um, the thing that really struck me was that for any of these people to be sensitive to God, they would not have to do any big dramatic things. Sensitivity was not requiring dramatic displays of faith here. Instead, sensitivity to God within this family would have just looked like ordinary obedience. It would have looked like a father just leading his family without playing favorites. It would have looked like a mother, a wife, being a helper to her husband, not a manipulator. It would have looked like brothers just living together in unity, just people loving and being honest. All very ordinary things. But God would be the one to do something extraordinary. He doesn't always ask for dramatic big displays of faith. He just asks us to be sensitive to do the ordinary, obedient things in every situation. And through these flawed people, just like us, growing in their friendship with God, God could continue his plan to bless the world. God would do the extraordinary if they would just practice ordinary sensitivity and obedience. Let's pray. God, your grace is overwhelming, and so we just stop and we thank you for it. We thank you that you offer us Friendship when we don't deserve it. And we ask that your grace would continue, Lord. We ask that we could grow to be mature friends of yours 
and to be ever sensitive of your plans and your your deeds and your desires. Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless the world and we would not be a hindrance to your plans. And we ask all these things for your glory and your honor and your praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.